0: Hello. Welcome to the Fast Cut Sub Podcast, where we make biblical theology simple, practical, and fun so that we can love God and others more.
1: I'm Conrad, and my favorite Disney princess is Princess Jasmine.
0: And I'm Jesse, and my favorite Disney princess is Belle.
1: Try the great stuff. It's delicious. Don't believe me. That's (laughs) delicious. We're just two guys trying to follow Jesus hanging out in the studio with their Bibles and guitars. We chose
0: just 30 minutes Us. to chat about a theological topic God. and renew our minds with the good things of Christ. So,
1: it's like a song.
0: Today we're talking about Verses We Mess, mess Up
1: Part two. 2. Two, three, four verses we
0: mess up. These are the ones we get wrong. Verses we <laughs> so flat. Take two. Yeah. So
1: Christians mess up verses all the time. Agreed. Factually correct. They kind of just find some verse that justifies whatever philosophy they have, and they use an out-of-context verse to support it. And there are some verses Christians mess up a lot more than others. So in today's episode, we're going to go over another two popular verses that we mess up so that we might be able to avoid falling into sin while at the same time calling that sin God's will.
0: So here's two more coming at you. Start us off. Well, before we hit the verses, we
1: first had to recap how to properly interpret scripture because there's a science to it. And Jesse, what is the technical term for interpreting scripture?
0: That word is hermeneutics. Right. So
1: you can't just find a verse and make up your own meaning.
0: Right. So the point is that times change applications may vary, but the original author's meaning and intent and all the subsequent principles derived from that are fixed and eternal.
1: Right. So there might be many applications, but there's one true meaning.
0: Exactly. Now,
1: things get complicated really quick because there are a number of biblical genres, literary genres. Like when Christ told the parable of the prodigal son, he wasn't saying that it was an actual historical account. So knowing the biblical genre is the trick to understanding the passage. And we're going to list all the biblical genres right now. There's a few, few biblical genres for you mm-hmm. A parable poetry and, and history. history. Oh, baby. Never narrative yeah. an epistle and prophecy.
0: Law and and wisdom wisdom apocalyptic There's a bunch for you to pick Knowing the biblical genre is the trick
1: And on top of that, complicating matters even more Biblical authors used literary devices
0: There's literary devices for you and me Yeah, girl Similes, metaphors, and allegories. Anthropomorphism, hyperbole. We're the greatest singers in history. Knowing the literary devices is the key.
1: (laughs) Amazing song. So, when we say we interpret the Bible literally, what we mean is we interpret according to its literature, literally. So we interpret according to its literary genre
0: or literary devices. Thank you. That literally makes a lot more sense now. <laughs> well,
1: I'm glad I cleared that up.
0: So hit me with a verse that we mess up.
1: So one of the biggest verses we mess up I see is John fourteen thirteen, where it says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Well,
0: that seems pretty open-ended. <laughs> you can drive a truck through that verse, and you can probably ask for one.
1: God, God, I pray for a dually truck with exhaust stacks and a ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just imagine what people would ask
0: for. or And do ask for. Yeah. Or, or use this verse to support asking for all manner of types of things.
1: Right. And I'm sure everyone here has at least been tempted to pray to win some type of lottery. Right. Or people will pray to have somebody fall in love with them, or to get that promotion.
0: And as long as you tack on
1: in, in Jesus, Jesus name, name,
0: it authorizes that prayer. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a Harry Potter spell. Right. Exactly. So going back to the literary
1: genres, what kind of literary genre is this?
0: This is some history action right here. Right.
1: And is there any literary device being used?
0: Not necessarily because this is just straightforward. It's Jesus talking.
1: Right. So now that we got that part of hermeneutics down, there's other two other things that we need to ask with hermeneutics. You it, bet there are. It's what's the story behind the passage, and what was the author's intention? And the easiest way to remember that is in a song. Two, three, four! When you read a passage, when you read a passage ask yourself this question. What's the big idea? What's the story behind it? Who wrote it? And what was its intention? Where did it take place? When you read a passage, when you read a passage ask yourself this question. Ten, yeah, use hermeneutics just like a cookie, not like a lunatics. What do we use? What do we use? What do we use? We use hermeneutics. So, what's the story behind whatever <laughs> you ask in my name? This I will do. That is the question. So, in this is in John 14. So, this is basically the story of the Last Supper. So, this is after Judas had already left to go betray him, after Jesus predicts Peter's denial, and also after Jesus washed the disciples' feet. So, basically, what's happening is Christ is preparing them for a time where he's not going to be with them. Right. So, Christ sets this up in the three verses prior, and so Christ basically says he doesn't speak on his own authority but on the Father's authority. And the works that Christ does are really the works of the Father. So, the Father
0: works through the Son. And there's something really telling about those verses, because what Jesus is explaining is that not only are he and the Father one, but anything that he says, all the words that come out of his mouth are actually the Father's words that have been authorized by the Father and given to Christ, and he's obedient to only speak that which God the Father has actually given to him.
1: Exactly. But then, where does that leave the disciples? So then Christ adds them to the equation. So he says, basically, so for those who truly believe in Christ, they will speak and do what Christ does, which is in turn what the Father wants. So when Christ leaves the disciples and ascends into heaven, the disciples can now do the work of the Father just as Christ did the work of the Father. So the Father works through Christ and Christ works through us. And that's when he gives us this verse. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it.
0: So far from being open-ended, this is actually a qualifier, Mm -hmm. right? It says that if you want to ask for something in my name, it should be commensurate with my mission, the things that will bring God glory.
1: Right. So listen to these other verses that say something very similar that also have a qualifier. Hit me. John 15, 7 says, if you abide in me, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. Right. First John 5, 14 says some, something very similar. And this is the confidence which we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears
0: us. So we're getting this idea that the shape of prayer Is around the promises of God, the things that he wants to give us, that he wants to do in our lives that bring him glory. And that should be the thing that informs everything we ask for.
1: So I came up with an analogy to explain all this. Do you eat at Chipotle? Sure. Yeah, my family eats there all the time. So if you don't have a Chipotle, basically it's a fast, casual burrito restaurant where you go down the line and you ask for ingredients and they scoop what you ask for into the burrito. But a lot of times I don't even have to get in line to order the burrito because I just go online and order my burrito and prepay for it. But now let's say I can't go to Chipotle to pick it up, and I ask you to pick it up for me. Okay. So you can go up to the counter and say, I am here in Conrad's name to pick
0: up a burrito. So you've made me a burrito emissary. Exactly. On your behalf. Yes. I go with your authority to go get this burrito. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) See where this parable is going? Yes, it's very formal. (laughs) I love this.
1: So this is called the parable of the spiritual burrito. (laughs) <laughs> okay, but in this parable, I'm gonna combine the parable and the explanation all at the same time. Great! So this is exciting. It, it's gonna
0: it's gonna sound I really weird. I cannot wait, so. and I'm also super hungry now.
1: <laughs> so the idea of this parable is that Christ sent you in His name to pick up a burrito at His father's mm-hmm. burrito restaurant, and the name of the restaurant is called the Will of God.
0: Okay, you follow? <laughs> I love their burritos
1: <laughs> because we are in God's. Burrito restaurant, he only okay. has the freshest and healthiest ingredients in there. This makes sense. And these very ingredients will help you do the will of God, thus, the name of the restaurant. And really, what is the will of God? It's also the motto of our podcast.
0: I believe it's love God, love others. That's it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Christ said, I want you to order a love God, love others, that's it burrito. So you go to the counter and say, I have come in on behalf of Jesus. And he paid for and told me to pick up a love God, love others, that's it, burrito. So the burrito counter has two sections, the meat and the toppings, both of which are sides of God's will. So God's will, part one, these are God's commands. This is the meat. So when you were asked, what type of meat do you want on it? You see that they only have two meats, steak and chicken. Steak from the love God ranch And chicken from the love others farm. Okay. So it's okay with Christ if you get steak or chicken or both because it's a love God, love others, that's it, burrito. Okay. Now, when you get to the second part of the counter, you get to part two of God's will. And part of God's will is to make you more like Christ. And what are the traits that Christ has? Well, he has traits like the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And these are represented by toppings like Rice, salsa, beans, corn. Or guacamole. Yes, guacamole. That's an important one. Which is guacamole? Guacamole is... Patience. Patience. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> What's sour cream? Kindness. <laughs> What's love then? What's the overarching thing? Cilantro? Could you put love on everything? What is the... Can you put... T- no, it would probably can be you put lettuce. put love on everything? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you can. It would have to be lettuce. Or, oh, there's also cheese. Cheese! cheese. cheese. <laughs>
0: love is definitely cheese. Okay, so love
1: is cheese. In Everything's this, better in with this.
0: cheese. Everything is also better with love.
1: <laughs> that sounds like a song right there.
0: Hold on. Give me a sec.
1: <laughs> That's an incredible song. So all these that you're asking for on the burrito represent the Christ-like traits you're asking for, such as the fruit of the spirit, such as love, joy, peace, and patience, and humility. And the thing is, you can order as much fruit of the spirit toppings as you want because these toppings are compatible and they enhance the meat. So in fact, the more fruit of the spirit toppings you have, love, joy, peace, patience, humility, etc the better... You can love God and love others. The better the meat tastes. Okay. Okay. Now, what if you got up to the counter and when they asked you what type of meat that you wanted, you responded with, I want chocolate ice cream.
0: I mean, you can ask for it, but they're not going to give it to you because they don't serve it there.
1: Exactly. And it goes beyond that because remember, we're only there at the restaurant because we are an ambassador for Christ, right? We're asking for what Christ wants. Right. And Christ didn't ask for an ice cream Sunday, no he wants, like, walk. He, he wants a burrito, right? You know? exactly. so if we ask for this ice cream, we are now misusing the name of Christ, right. And so that's when we ask for ice cream, that's basically us asking for a promotion or financial stability or romance or bodily comfort, because at the end of the day, you're praying for temporary earthly comforts, not Christlikeness, or the ability to love God and others
0: more. It all comes down to the heart.
1: Right. So you can't ask for something like romance and a Christ like trait such as peace in the same burrito. Because if you had peace in the first place, well, then you wouldn't be so lonely and you wouldn't need to find that romance. So the two ingredients can't work together. Or another example, like asking for a promotion and humility in the same burrito doesn't work. Because if you had humility to begin with, then you wouldn't really need to get that promotion. So when a personal desire of yours is what you really want, well, then you're just at the wrong restaurant. Right. So what happens is this exposes when our motives are wrong because none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but when we elevate them above God's will for us to be Christ-like and to love God and others, the meat of the burrito, we see how our requests actually turn into idols. Right. So really what we should be doing is when we ask God for stuff, we really are only asking him to help us line up closer with his will.
0: And that gets to the heart of why God uses prayer, why he wants us to pray to him. Because what he's trying to do in the act of actually praying is do a work in our lives. Exactly. And so that's why when we pray appropriately, he's doing that work as we seek his will.
1: Right. And now when Christ said, not my will, but your will be done, now it starts to make sense. Right. So here's the application. So ask yourself, when praying, are you praying as a representative of Christ? Are you praying for what he has authorized you to pray for? And are you praying for the things that he paid for with his blood? Because Christ's blood ultimately paid for your Christ likeness. And in our Christ likeness, we can love God and others more. So when you make requests of God during your prayers, you must ask yourself if God grants me this request, will it help me love God and others more? And will it help me have more of the traits of Christ, such as the fruit of the Spirit? Or if I get my request, Will it just make my life easier and allow me to live a life of distraction and entertainment? So while you are going through struggles, ask God to grow Christlikeness while you are going through those things, while you are single, while you are waiting for that promotion, while you have health problems. Because if you prayed for something like a promotion, well, then the promotion is the goal, not likeness, and therefore it would be an idol. But if you prayed for Christlikeness while you were waiting for the promotion, Your goal is now your Christ-likeness, and the situation is simply a means to that goal. So here's the 15-second Fast God Stuff Summary. Without realizing it, we oftentimes pray for selfish things. Knowing that Christ does the will of the Father, and we do the will of Christ, should guide us when we pray. Prayer is not conforming God to your will, but conforming you to God's will. And His will for you is to love God, love others, that's it. Love is like cheese. May some Love is like cheese. So Jesse, what's your verse? What's your verse that you see Christians misusing?
0: So check this out. When times are tough... Someone with good intentions inevitably tries to say something encouraging like, remember, God will never give us more than we can handle. Whoops. (laughs) Have you ever heard somebody say
1: that? Yeah, yeah. And I actually hear that all the time.
0: Right. So we should ask, well, that's a fun and very kind sentiment, but is it true? Mm -hmm. That's the question. So I thought we should really test the validity of that phrase by looking at the Apostle Paul. Because as a pioneer missionary, Paul often traveled into these hostile territories and he suffered greatly for the message of Jesus. Oh yeah. In fact, he uses some heavy words to talk about his missionary work in 2 Corinthians 6. And the words he uses are things like affliction, hardship, distress, imprisonment, (laughs) hard work, (laughs) sleeplessness, hunger, sorrow, mistreatment, poverty. It's crazy.
1: Stuff that I go through all the time.
0: Exactly. Who hasn't (laughs) been there many times? (laughs) Yeah. So Paul is a unique guy because he tells us he was beaten three times. He was shipwrecked three times, (laughs) which is crazy. Stop getting on those boats. And he was whipped, which is given a specific punishment of 39 lashes five times. So if you're keeping score at home, that's 195 lashes. In fact, this is crazy. When on his missionary journey in Lystra, there was a group of Jews who hated Paul so badly, they took a road trip from another town to come find him. And then when they did, they stoned him and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead, but he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul then popped up and he re-entered the same city to go on preaching the gospel.
1: Uh, That's crazy, right? Quick question. How do you stone somebody? Like, where do you, like, do you just find rocks or do you bring your own rocks I like think it's a the,
0: B-Y-O-R.
1: Honey, go fetch me my stone and rocks. <laughs> We're going to go stone Paul. And that's what makes this
0: crazy is people are throwing rocks at his head. He's presumably unconscious. They take him outside the city. And then he's like, no big deal, guys. I'm, <laughs> I got to go back in and do the work that God has called me to. Yeah. And so Paul probably says it best. This is how he describes his life. What his missionary travels have been like. He writes to the Corinthians. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Mm -hmm. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Yeah. So it sounds to me like Paul had way more than he could handle. Unless we're assuming that Paul is like a superhuman person. Yeah. And he could handle people throwing rocks at his head. Uh, Being stoned to death. Right.
1: Okay, that's like... When you're completely unconscious, that was something more that you can handle because you are literally unconscious. (laughs)
0: Exactly. You certainly cannot handle that. So the question then becomes, well, why were all these things happening? And Paul luckily gives us an answer to that question himself in the same letter. He writes, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead.
1: Exactly. There it is. So
0: God was teaching Paul not to rely on his own strength, but to rely upon the strength that comes from God, the same strength and power that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead.
1: Exactly. Because we can't handle it, we have to rely on him.
0: The lesson here is clearly from Paul that God will give us more than we can handle to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we realize our very life, our breath, our sustaining power comes only from him. Exactly. So where then does this idea that God will not give us more than we can handle come from? And it's actually a spin-off or a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians Ten, thirteen, right and that reads no temptation has ever overtaken you except what is common to mankind and god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it so like we've been talking about with hermeneutics the first thing we want to ask is well, what's the occasion of these particular words mm-hmm. that what's paul is presenting exactly So the Apostle Paul is writing a letter. So this is an example of an epistle. Mm -hmm. And he's writing from Ephesus during his third missionary journey to a church in the city of Corinth, which he founded in his second missionary journey. And so the Christian congregation in Corinth, which was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, flourished under Paul's ministry. He actually stayed in Corinth for 18 months. Mm -hmm. That's a long time to work on a project. Yeah. So he was super devoted to the church there. And since Paul had taught them the gospel and its implications at length and in depth, Paul had reason to expect some spiritual maturity from these Corinthian Christians. Uh. But the letter reveals that the Corinthian church, instead of maturing in that period. Yeah, they were a mess. (laughs) Exactly. They had all these problems, including things like division, abuse of the Lord's supper and baptism, disorder during worship services, confusion about the resurrection and the proper exercise of the Christian's liberty in the gospel and extreme moral laxity. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. Oh yeah, totally. So what had happened? And and this is where it helps us to know something about the time and the period. So Corinth was one of the largest cities in the Roman world and also one of the most corrupt. And because it was a strategic commercial center, the city sought to provide a wide variety of pleasures and enticements to international visitors and to those who would settle there. Yeah. So in this setting, the Christians became absolutely polarized. Some insisted that association with sinners was permissible and necessary but others argued that some measure of isolation was essential to preserve holiness. Mm-hmm. And these warring factions grew out of control in Corinth and literally endangered the future of the church there. Okay, So Paul's like, it's time for me to send some emails yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and straighten this whole nonsense out. So the context of these words are Paul talking, not about general circumstances and hardships of life. He's talking specifically about temptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's what he's after here. And Paul is warning the Corinthian Christians about the dangers of being overly confident in their ability to resist temptation. Yeah. So now that the Corinthians were Christians, they no longer worshiped idols, but they still wanted to participate in the social life of the city in which they lived. Mm -hmm. And Corinth had a really idol-focused culture. Yeah. And so the Corinthians began to rationalize their behavior a little bit. And we do that all the time too. Oh yeah. They felt that as long as they had the proper perspective on idols then the idols were in fact meaningless. They could give themselves total freedom to participate in pagan social activities so long as they didn't succumb to temptation. And Paul recognizes right away that this is playing with fire.
1: Right, and we play with fire too, just in slightly different ways, but now the temptations and everything are just coming straight to us through the internet and through TV, through media, and through culture.
0: Right, exactly. So all those things could be temptations That would pull us in a direction that is away from becoming Mm Christ-like. Yeah. So what is this verse really about then? Okay. First thing we learn is that temptation is not sin. Right. And that's a wonderfully liberating thought because that means that when we are tempted, we can shut that down by the power of God and move away from sin rather than toward it.
1: Right. And remember, Christ was tempted.
0: Exactly. And that leads to the second thing that this verse is really about. And that is that no one should ever say that they had no choice but to sin because that temptation was far too great and there was no way to escape it. Mm -hmm. Because God is saying he knows our limits with regard to temptation, and he will not allow any temptation to supersede a person's ability to resist it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right, and that's really comforting. And the last thing that we learned is that God will himself provide the spiritual resources necessary for us to sufficiently endure temptation.
1: Man, I love that. It's beautiful. Oh, totally. So
0: far from this verse just being some kind of weird blanket ephemeral statement that, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. It's a much better promise to know that God, when you are tempted, will give you the way out and will provide you with the resources and the strength to seek that way out. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah. He's totally walking alongside of us.
0: Exactly. So that leads to some really good practical application. So when we are tempted, we should also always be looking for the God ordained way out of it. Mm -hmm. That's the promise. So it's kind of like when you get onto a plane and they go through that pre-flight safety check, uh-huh. they always point you to what? The exit. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way we should always be thinking. In fact, we should be preparing ourselves for that exit. So for example, if you're going on a road trip or even just driving to work and you know that you are tempted when you are driving to experience road rage, <laughs> then perhaps one of the things you could do to look for the exit head time is bring some good quality worship music with you in the car, Mm -hmm. knowing that you're going to be tempted to react in one way. And this music might help orient your mind and your emotions in another direction.
1: Right. And something else that you can do too, is just have a couple verses ready beforehand, because you know that you're going to run into bad drivers. You know, you're going to get upset at red lights. So you can prepare yourself beforehand just saying, okay, when I hit a red light or I run into an annoying driver, these are the verses I'm going to say. So you hit that red light and then you can say, God, thank you that I can count it all joy because you're growing my faith in this or that all things work together for the good of them that love God.
0: Yes. And that dovetails so nicely with what you just communicated about praying in Jesus' name, mm-hmm. seeking that as an opportunity to do that, getting your mind basically ready so that when the temptation comes, you can find the way out and go through that door right away. Right. And that leads to the second practical application. And that is commit some scripture to memory our best weapon against temptation is the scripture or as Paul calls it, the sword of the spirit. Right. So to have that on your mind and then to be able to put it on your lips in that moment is a way to reorient yourself away from the temptation, away from sin toward becoming more like Jesus. So here's the 15 second fast God stuff summary. When it comes to life's hardships and difficulties, the Bible teaches us that we should be prepared to receive more than we can handle so that we can learn to rely on God and not ourselves. However, there is an area where God will graciously not allow us to encounter more than we can handle. Temptation. Temptation. So what did we learn today, Conrad?
1: Well, we learned that to honor God and to be obedient to God, you have to interpret his word correctly through proper hermeneutics. So for one thing, at least quote the verse right, as in the example you brought up, And then in the example that I brought up, get the entire context of the verse so you can understand how to apply it correctly. And once you get the verses right, memorize key passages for use in difficult situations that you frequently face. And when we do that, we can be more like Christ. And when we are more like Christ, well, then we can fulfill our purpose better, which is to love God and others more.
0: That's all the time we have for today. Tell a friend about this episode and subscribe to the Fast God Stuff podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to podcast.
1: Fast God Stuff is a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. And please check out FastGodStuff.com for all kinds of content that will help you order a spiritual burrito.
0: Until next time, love
1: God, love others, that's it. it!